0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to Drugs and Stuff with Dave Crossland. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. You can use our code THINK for some additional savings on high-quality third-party tested supplements, plus you'll help to support our programming. I also want to give a huge shout-out to all of our Patreon followers. You guys are helping to make this thing happen. Uh, If you guys enjoy the content, then do us a favor. Hit the like button, leave us some comments, and I'm sure you're gonna have a lot of thoughts on this one. I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say. Uh, Dave and I, are joined by lawyer Rick Collins you can check him out over at steroidlaw.com not only uh, is Rick involved uh, in everything bodybuilding related when it comes to the law uh, from everything from uh, defending people that are involved in steroid cases to uh, you know the, the, the big supplement companies and making everything happen uh, he is also a bro just like you and me
1: <laughs> what's up how you doing man how are you guys? Good. To, it is clear I am out bearded by the two of you, um, very much so. But uh, but that was that was kind of you, and thank you. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it's true. I was a bodybuilder. Uh, I recently posted on my Instagram my NPC card, my, my competition card from when I competed in the NPC, like, you know, back when we rode dinosaurs to, to the, you know, to the Expos. But, um, but yeah, I, I competed as a bodybuilder and, and, um, you know, was into health and fitness even before I even went to law school. So, so I've been able to sort of meld my vocation and avocation, the things that I'm passionate about and interested in, into my career, and it's 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 great, and it's great that I can chat with you guys.
0: Yeah, I'm pumped for this. Um, you know, as as a lot of our listeners know, uh, Dave is uh, an expert witness for the the court system in the UK. Um, so it, it, it's rare that we can get two people together here that have you know a, a pretty decent. I'll say in Dave's case, a pretty decent understanding of the law, and then (laughs) an expert as well. Uh, Dave and I like to give each other shit just to just to. I see that. Um, Yeah, so like because here's the thing: is you know we were talking before the show. I feel like you know a a, a lot of us guys in the gym don't have uh, a, a solid understanding of you know basically it's it comes down to like it's like lore basically you know. Do uh, controlled deliveries actually happen? You know stuff like that. It's like you, mm-hmm. you have a friend of a friend of a friend who once got in trouble, and then that story has been changed five times. Uh, so I thought we could start out just talking about you know some of the basics, uh, and 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 talking about like, you know I know a lot of the, uh, the 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 people who are buying steroids now have gone to purchasing them online. And Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of risk involved there. You're getting the mail system involved in all of that. Um, I guess I'll just fire a question at you to start out. How much trouble could somebody get in if they were to allegedly buy anabolic steroids from some crazy overseas website and attempt to get them delivered
1: to their house? Yeah. So uh, I've been dealing with these sorts of issues from Dating back to I guess the late nineties when um you know, the internet really started exploding. You know, if you if you go back in time, I guess the main ways back in maybe the eighties, the main ways that that guys would acquire steroids would be you know friendly pharmacists who would just sort of backdoor out some FDA approved product or uh, sympathetic doctors um, or the gym dealers, This was sort of pre, pre-internet, you know, commerce. And obviously the internet changed things. So now suddenly you could access a website in Thailand or anywhere in the world and you could access whatever you wanted to be delivered to you by mail. Um, the one thing to recognize here in the United States, and Dave, I don't know how it works in the UK, but in the U.S., there's a difference between domestic mail and international mail in terms of your privacy rights in that mail. So if you have a package being sent to you in your residence in California from Florida, that package, that mail can only be opened with a search warrant. A warrant is required to open domestic parcels. International mail is different under the theory of kind of like that something is coming in at our border, and so the authorities would have a greater right in opening that package and doing a border-type search of the contents of that package. And the expectation of privacy, in other words, the designated recipient's uh, interests in that package are less in an international package. So bottom line is, when you order a package from overseas, the customs and, and border authorities do not need a warrant to open up that package. They can open it up on a, a reasonable cause to open that package. And if they find inside that package that there's what they believe is contraband, they can test that, they can see if it's steroids or something else and um and if they do find that it is something that's not legal they have a few options option number 1 and i'm sure scott you've probably you know seen this on on you know forums and and maybe discussed it on the show that option 1 is to is for them to send out a seizure notice a, a letter basically saying you know Hey there, you know, we're from the government and we have a package that was addressed to you that we don't think you have a right to have. And if you think you do have a right to have what's in that package, let us know, you know, contact us and we'll discuss your interest in that package. Otherwise, uh, if we don't hear from you, we're going to destroy the contents of that package. Um, And that's usually what happens with a small volume order that comes from overseas. Um, If it's a larger amount or if there's a record at the post office or post office box, mail records that show that this is like a volume of packages coming in from overseas, Mm. that can heighten their interest. And uh, instead of just doing that seizure notice, they can do what you described before, which is a controlled delivery. And I've been involved in the defense of many cases. It, does it happen? Yes, it happens. It's not a myth. It's not mm. something that you know um, is uh, out of out of you know reality. Um, it happens more in jurisdictions, I think, where there's less going on. Ah. So uh, you know, if if you're in metropolitan New York. I'm not sure that they're going to bother with a controlled delivery of, you know, a few vials of Sustanon or, you know, um, you know, five hundred, you know, uh, pills, uh, steroid pills. Um, but maybe if you're in more less active, maybe more rural areas, um, they've got nothing better to do,
0: basically. It,
1: I, I've seen controlled deliveries of, for example, I had a case in Maryland a few years ago, a uh, controlled delivery of a thousand tablets from Thailand. So these were the little, this was when, you know, the the little uh, five you know, sided pink pentagons, the Thai Anibal, um, would come in like a tub from Thailand. And so dude orders it and it's delivered to him from thailand feds find it at the border they do the control delivery which basically means they dress up a federal agent as if he is a a mail carrier and ring the bell and guy comes to the door their objective is to put that package in that person's hands you know the Possession is nine-tenths of the law. From an evidentiary standpoint, once you accept that package, the case against you obviously is much stronger than if you didn't accept the package. And the there's a warrant that's attached to that process huh. so that once the designated recipient takes that package, the warrant is triggered and can be executed. And then you'll have anywhere from... 10 to 15 federal agents swarm the house, come inside, uh, take the package, and take any other evidence that would be connected to that package. So they'll take computers, they'll take laptops, they'll take phones, they'll take any records. Uh, I've seen them take uh, steroid books, like an anabolic reference guide. They take it because that is indicative that the person who is being charged is involved with steroids, and that this wasn't some mistake that this is that this is connected so um, and I've seen them make the claim, and this is I think where Dave and I can have a discussion because I've seen so-called experts, uh, police experts, government experts, who will say that the thousand tabs of Anabol is indicative of a large-scale distributor of mm. anabolic steroids um, under the sort of analogy that, well, if you had a 1,000 hits of ecstasy or a 1,000 packets of cocaine or heroin, I think that would probably be indicative that you've got somebody who's not a personal user and is, is indicative of a distributor. Obviously, we know, and obviously Dave testifies a lot concerning that, is that the habits of steroid users are completely different from the habits of Mm. cocaine, heroin crack users, you know, but, but the government doesn't really understand that. And so you are in situations here, as I'm sure you are in the UK, where the government is saying, hey, we've got a big scale dealer here. He had a thousand, thousand tablets of steroids. Oh, you know, let's call the news and let's, let's, you know, this is front page local news for the, the Baltimore Herald or whatever. Um, And in reality, you know, we know that steroid users typically use in cycles, and so you'll want to acquire enough for at least one, maybe multiple cycles, because you never want to get caught, you know, short in the middle of a cycle, so they're pack rats, right? You'll, You'll acquire everything, and I've seen, you know, when they've searched the house of a steroid user, and they'll find, you know, an array of different Steroids, short-acting, you know, long-acting esters. They'll they'll find some Deca. They'll find maybe some Tren. Um, they'll find some Orals, and then they'll find some Tamoxifen, some Clombuterol, some Clomiphene. You know, some Anastrozole, some Letrozole. You know, all of the ancillaries that go along with the you know a uh, cycle. And I've actually seen them make the claim, oh my God, we've got a full pharmacy here. This mm. guy's a massive steroid dealer, you know, because of, you know, what was basically contest prep, you know? Yeah. So, um, so, so, so I've seen that happen and um, it doesn't happen as much now because the market here has changed and it may have changed in the UK um, where now, Most individual users are not ordering from overseas. Most of them are getting from underground labs who are getting from overseas. So the raw powder comes in, domestic manufacturing occurs here in people's kitchens and and basements. And then that underground labs sends out uh, domestically uh, the packages, which do, again, have that greater protection. So what I see more now is the underground labs are the target rather ah, than the end users.
0: That makes sense. And I imagine that that manufacturing of any sort has to be bigger penalties than just simply distribution.
1: Yes. So, you know, our system is designed to kind of separate use, you know, the, the possessors, the end users who are just guilty of personal possession and the distributors. So in many states and, you know, the, the law here in the U.S. is both there's a federal law that applies nationwide and attached to that are guidelines called the federal sentencing guidelines, which describe or advise what sort of punishments are appropriate for different quantities of dealing. And it's based on drug quantities. So if you're dealing small amounts of steroids, your exposure for prison is less than medium amounts and medium amounts is less than higher amounts. So the The more steroids you are charged with distributing over the course of your conduct, Hmm. the greater your potential exposure at the federal level. But every state has its own laws regarding steroids. And in some states, in in most states, misdemeanor uh, charges come from personal use situations, personal possession amounts, and felony charges come from felony being the higher, more serious crime from distribution. But in some states, a minority of states, even personal use possession is a felony. So in some states, you've got one tablet of anadrol or, or, you know, one amp of uh, some you know, sustenance. And that is a felony in wow. that state. Wow. So uh, it varies by states. You know, obviously, more, I guess, more liberal states don't have laws that way and more conservative states are, tend to have those more aggressive, um, you know, charging uh, differences.
0: Yeah, it, it's amazing to sit here with both of you guys and to think that the laws in these two countries are so vastly different.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't have the personal possession here. Um, The only issue we have around that is the age-old argument. Does it quantify personal use? And we have no guidelines for that. There is is no legal guideline as to what quantifies personal use. Uh, Generally speaking, the police don't particularly have an appetite for steroids in this country, and this has been long known. And as a result, steroid supply has become quite blatant. Um, so generally, when the police encounter a steroid supply case, it's usually off the back of something else. It could be a roadside traffic stop. It could be a domestic assault charge that they're responding to. But it's usually based off something else. Uh, border control have openly stated they have way over 400 addresses of interest in the importation of raw powder, but they not have the resources, the manpower, or even the appetite to investigate them. Hmm. Um, we don't have the protection on personal post or internal post. Um, And generally what they'll do is a very similar situation, but they'll allow the regular post to deliver the parcel and then they will enter minutes after. Um, What is slightly different is when it comes to sentencing guidelines, though number of drugs and value of drugs do play into that, They also look at the position of the individual in the supply chain. So they have what they'll call significant one, significant two, significant three. And to put that in layman terms, significant one is big cheese boss. Two is very big understanding of operation and a direct contact with whoever's heading up the operation. And three is your monkey that does your monkey work. Um, and so often the discussion in court is to establish where that individual sits in the supply or manufacture of of those drugs. Hmm. Um, and often, as you'll know yourself, Rick, with, with a case, it's not really a case of, of whether they're guilty or not. It's a case of damage limitation and how much you can offset the, the, the case down in, in regards to protecting the client or reducing their liability in the case that they're facing. Uh, and that is often an area where we, we, we find some leeway in proving where they fit in the supply chain. So they may bust a lab and have actually very little actual content of drug uh, and, and very little actual content of financial proof, but still because they can prove that it's his lab he runs the show, he will get a heftier sentence than a, a retailer would who's caught with quite a substantial amount of drugs because he's not the head of the, the pyramid. Uh, and their argument is that if they run the lab, they have much more potential than the the guy that is just buying off a lab and selling to his mate's situation. So we do see some changes in that, and we don't have the same protection over the post um, but there is strict rules around the post but with suspicion if they can justify suspicion they don't need a warrant so for argument's sake if you were stopped in a roadside traffic stop just because you had a taillight out or you were speeding or you broke a camera or whatever it may be uh, and they, emptied, they, opened, they, they did a quick search of the car and they found anabolics present they then would have without warrant right to search your home search your business Mm. anything associated with that they feel was justifiable if they didn't find that there then they don't have that right they would then have to go and get a warrant and there was a a, a very interesting case of actually a drug worker in glasgow who was the right-hand man of the needle exchange program up there and um, they suspected him of supply Uh, and uh, they did search him and found nothing they then searched his home and found a full lab, hmm. but because they didn't have a warrant, because they had no grounds for suspicion, because they hadn't found any drugs in the pre- preceding search, that search was deemed illegal. Hmm. And obviously so, what would happen?
1: So, for somebody uh, who, let's say, it's a car stop in the UK, and they find in the console five steroid pills or you know two amps of of sustenance or something there's so i would assume they wouldn't make the argument that that is indicative of distribution so if if they looked at it as personal use do they just do they confiscate it or do they just go
2: that let you go your way Unfortunately, individual officers are very poorly educated and part of what I do is actually educating them on where they are within the law and what they can do and can't do. Um, and so that would be down to the individual officer. If he had half a brain uh, cell, he would send them on the way. Uh, so- there are officers confiscating and they are refusing to return when a case has ended so there are quite a few cases where personal possession, uh, they've, they've stopped someone. Similar scenario, maybe a few more vials, maybe, shall we say, a half a dozen vials. Uh, the police officer has seized the drugs and then looked at an intent to prosecute. It's gone to the wow. Crown, Crown Prosecution Service and they've said, there's no case to answer. It's an NFA, no further action. Hmm. And then the individual is presented to the police and said, can I have my drugs back? And the police have gone, No. And what they hide behind is that technically they would be committing an offence because they would be supplying drugs. I see. It is bullshit of the greatest <laughs> order. But until someone actually takes the police force to court, right. there is no case law to support that they must be returned because they are that individual's personal property. Hmm. Um, and obviously, who's going to take the police to, co- to court over six files of SUST? It's just not financially worth it. So right. at the Makes moment, no several, poli- several police forces refuse to return drugs that have been confiscated, even though the individual is legal within their rights to have them back. I've argued this even at JUVA, which is a drug expert witness association, which is a police organisation. Um, what we tend to find in this country is that each police department will have their drug expert witness department. And there will be one unfortunate soul in that department that has been given the job of dealing with steroids. uh, And generally speaking, they haven't got a clue. They really don't know anything and they will avoid the jobs like the plague. The defence side of expert witness work is generally ex-police officers. And it's a very similar scenario. They have very little knowledge around steroids. There's probably really only two expert witnesses that specialise in steroids, which is myself and a gentleman called Martin Chandler who is a steroid researcher and and has a a long history of of being involved within steroid culture and steroid research and a bit of personal use, Um, probably 10, 15 years of that. So he has a good basic standard. Um, The role of an expert witness within the UK is, is on paper unbiased to support the court. So even though defence and prosecution can present their own expert witnesses and their own expert witnesses' reports, technically, really, you should only need one because they're supposed to be an agent of the court, they're supposed to be completely unbiased. The reality of it is that as an expert witness, even if I do prosecution or I do defence, I am presented with the, the evidence And I have to try and make that evidence fit the story that that side's presenting. So if it's a defense case and he's caught with 500 vials of test and he's saying it's personal use, I have to try and look at that and go, is there any way I can, you know, and obviously in that case there's no chance. You're not going to be able to support that argument. So the rules are there. You can interpret them how you wish but obviously you will always run the risk that if you bend too far, it's going to snap and you're going to end up with a problem. Uh, I have seen fellows um, literally lose their careers because they've pushed too hard or too far, uh, or they've made assumptions, or they've tried to create a scenario that just the evidence just doesn't support. And, And when a court throws your your report out for being biased and unfair, you're very unlikely to stand in a court again. Hmm. Yeah. Right, right. You lose your credibility um, at that point. So you know, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's Well, yeah, of, I mean, the thing is, nobody wants to put their money behind you because either way, at the end of the day, either you're prosecuting the case, you're defending the case, you're spending a lot of money. Right. Uh, and, and nobody right. wants to put their money behind you at the risk that you're going to have your, your evidence thrown. So it's a very fine line, uh, but I I do really love that trying to fit pieces together to support an argument um, side of it. I I find it incredibly challenging, but I also find it incredibly Mm -hmm. enjoyable. And I love cross-examination in court. I I absolutely live for that shit.
1: (laughs) So we do, I think what we do is, is very similar and, like you said, mitigation of the exposure is a lot of what a good mm-hmm. defense lawyer or defense team puts together. Uh, like you, we, it's a little different. The the federal sentencing guidelines are very complicated. There are adjustments. So if you have a, a bigger role in the offense, that's an enhancement of the guidelines. If you have a minor role, that, that um, will reduce your exposure. There's all sorts of little um, you know, pickyune adjustments that can be placed. So, for example, just one is if you distribute to an athlete in the United States in federal court, that is a two-level bump up wow. in the guidelines. Um, oh, we have none of that. Mass, <laughs> right? So if you mass market um, use, using interactive computer, that's a two-level bump up. If you... Uh, if there are any masking agents uh that you're selling, and this was all the the athlete and the masking agent enhancements came out of concerns about obviously cheating in sports, which is really what all of this is about right and and if you've heard me and you know years ago, I wrote a book called Legal Muscle, which was an analysis of the history of America's approach to steroids uh, in law and in politics and culture and, you know, sports and everything, medicine. And uh, in that book I said basically steroids are the only drug here in the United States that that was criminalized, not really because of what it does that's bad to people, but what it the way that it benefits people, and that is, it makes you run, you jump, <laughs> lift more, fast, bigger, stronger, faster. And you know Chris Bell in in the movie Bigger, Stronger, Faster, um, kind of you know went with that theme. And uh, I was a consultant for that movie um, with another with the then editor of. Uh, of a magazine that I write a column for to this day. And um, and that really looked at that, that reality is that, you know, it's really the harms that was the pivotal reason why heroin and cocaine and other drugs of addiction were criminalized. But if you look at the hearings that Congress held in the late 1980s in the aftermath of, and I'm sure you remember, Dave, you know Ben Johnson in 1988 was the Canadian sprinter um, you know became the fastest man alive at the Seoul Olympics in 1988 and then tested positive for winstrel, right? And he had beat the he had beaten the American Carl Lewis in in the Olympics and you know the world of sports, you know turned on its head and here you have this Canadian who cheated and beat the American and so Congress had held all these hearings in the aftermath of that um, scandal and ultimately the criminalization of steroids in 1990 was born out of Ben Johnson's you know uh, cheat win at the at the Seoul Olympics um, and the focus, was far less on the harms of steroids, although there was a veneer of that. And of course, worry about the children and the message to the children and all of that. But primarily it was this concern of what happens if sports loses its quote unquote level playing field. Um, And, and obviously there's a good amount of debate as to whether there is a level playing field in sports to begin with, even with steroids out of the equation. But, but that was really where it came from. And, Uh, A number of years later, um, I was at the Swiss Conference, uh, which is a a great conference run by Dr. Ken Kanak in in Canada. And Ben Johnson was one of the panelists on a panel that I was on. I had never met him before, but I, I had a conversation with him where, in essence, I thanked him because my career as a criminal defense lawyer, <laughs> as, <laughs> as an advocate for truth and fairness <clears throat> and, 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 you know, sanity in this area really was launched by his, his scam. You know, we joked about it, but, um, you know, th- that really did start things in the U.S. And when we, maybe if we compare... Well, the U.S. generally has policies, ironically, no, no pun intended, on steroids compared to other nations. So in Canada, it's much more similar to the U.K. Personal use, possession of steroids, not really an issue. Um, but here in the U.S., we always want things to be, you know, our drug war is going to be the best drug war and so we we go heavier and more draconian in our punishments than than you would or or Canada would, and so um, you know I think that in part sort of the the Ben Johnson Carl Lewis scandal is what what really launched it, and we've we've gone back in our Congress has gone back twice after that to revise the steroid laws recognizing that there were gaps and holes and things that didn't really work. And so in 2004, we went back in and then in 2014, and most of these, you know, revisions, these amendments to the law are launched by scandals. You know, we had in 2002, Hmm. we had the Balco scandal. And if you remember, you know, there was Marion Jones and, you know, Barry Bonds and all these other high profile athletes were linked to this, you know, training facility in the Bay Area in California um, that was involved with the creation and and distribution of substances that were ergogenic and 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 but ultimately would not show up in a standard doping test. So there was, you know, if you remember there was something called the cream, which yeah. was a mix of testosterone and epitestosterone in a ratio that you would get the increased testosterone, but it wouldn't throw off the ratio between the two, which is one of the ways that doping authorities trigger and, and look for exogenous, you know, outside the body testosterone coming in. And, uh, and then there was the clear, which was a, a, a liquid, which Barry Bonds, if you remember, claimed he believed was flaxseed oil that he was drinking, um, that was a hybridized molecule between two steroids that, that was essentially created THG or tetrahydrogestrinone, um, which it's like a fingerprint, right? So if you don't have the fingerprint on file Hmm. and the fingerprint shows up, you can't identify it. So THG, was something that would not show up in the standard doping tests. And it was um, doping sleuth, you know, uh, Don Catlin at the time um, at the UCLA lab, UCLA lab that reverse engineered uh, and figured out THG. And, and my client was the um, creator of THG. Uh, so, so I've been involved, you know, with most of these high level steroid, you know, scandals and, and whatnot in a criminal defense capacity. So, um, you know, we've seen a lot a, a lot of aggressive action through the years. Although, similarly, Dave, I, I don't think that steroids are a main priority for DEA. I think that the American authorities just, you know, go after drugs in general. And when, you know, when there's a sports scandal they there's some activity there've been a number of uh big scale operations here in the US you may remember Scott operation gear grinder and operation yeah. raw deal and these were all these concerted multi you know jurisdictional nationwide DEA operations to go after either mexican labs or or you know uh, underground labs or things like that um I should mention, though, that in addition to sort of this acquisition and, and most arrests, most arrests occur because of acquisition of of controlled substances, because once it's in your house or, you know, hidden where you keep it, it's, it's less vulnerable to the prying eyes of the government. Right. It's when you're when you're acquiring it one way or another that is the highest risk. But. A lot of cases now come from confidential informants. Huh. So, you know, one person gets arrested for steroids or for something else. Let's say he's arrested for cocaine dealing. And now he he's looking to dig himself out of the hole. And so he meets with government authorities in what's called a proffer, where his truthfulness and completeness in his, you know, spelling out everything he knows about criminal activity in, you know, anywhere is of value. And so that person will say, well, you know, uh, I know a guy who's selling cocaine, I know somebody somebody who's dealing heroin, and I know a guy who's in an underground lab for steroids, and, and if the DEA is sitting there, that's information they acquire. It goes into a database, it's cross-referenced with other information, and ultimately, you know, people wind up getting tagged because of confidential informants. Hmm. Um, less common, but I have seen it, Dave, or the car stops. Uh, I represented a guy many, many years ago who had gone down to Mexico. He was a teacher here in the U.S. So a lot to lose because, you know, you get a conviction. You're, you, you know, here in the right. U.S. You, you can lose your job as a, as a uh, educator. Sure. So he had gone down to Mexico, was driving back. Had a trunk full of anabolic steroids, you know, tons of stuff. but really, just for him and his bros at, at the gym, you know, he was not. This was really even before internet dealing was, and and long yeah, before yeah, underground yeah. labs, you know. He was. This was Mexican stuff that that he had a, a trunk load, and he was coming back on one of the corridors where drug dealers, you know, will typically drive back from Mexico, and he was coming back up here to the to the northeast, and he got pulled over by one of these rural troopers in this rural. State that you know was I'm sure looking for, you know, coke and and you know narcotics, and the trooper pulls over the car and says, uh, "Well, boy, you know, uh, you got northeast plates here, and you know, what where are you coming from?" And he says, "Well, I was on a vacation. I was in Mexico, and I'm, I'm driving back up north." And he's like, "Well, you know, you don't have any drugs in this car now, do you?" Oh, no, officer, I I don't have any drugs in the car. Okay, why don't you pop open that trunk and let me take a little look? He's like, well, I know that I have a right to say no to that. And so I am, thank you, but I would like to go on my way, and I don't consent to any search of my car. Well, if you don't consent, then I'm going to have to call the K-9 unit. Hmm. And the canine unit's going to come here, and it's going to sniff your car. He goes, "Well, you know, I, uh, I have nothing to hide, but uh, you can do what you want. But I would like to leave now." Well, it's going to take about twenty minutes, so they wait twenty minutes. The canine unit shows up. The the dog gets out of the car. The canine handler walks the dog around the car twice, and the car, you know, uh, and the dog sits down. And, you know, uh, he hears the canine unit officer say to the trooper we ain't got shit Hmm. and the trooper walks over and says to the client it's a hit he goes it's a hit he said he ain't got shit no he said it's a hit he's like well wait a minute what what are you talking about you know and and the officer had tried that the trooper tried to threaten him and said well if the dog comes he's very aggressive he scratches car your your car's going to be destroyed are you sure you want me to do this Oh, yes, yes, yes. He's like, well, you told me the dog was violent. The dog was going to. He goes, no, this is a di- different dog. I mean, it was like one set of lies after another. And of course, they then pop open the trunk on this supposed, you know, hit by the dog. And so now the client is charged as a, you know, we have some, you know, um, uh, I think being a he was a New Yorker. I think being a New Yorker in that rural state was not to his benefit. Yeah. Um and so it was a, a small little town and um I asked for the discovery and you know and and what evidence there was that the dog was trained in detecting anabolic steroids. That's what I was wondering. Right. So um and I've I've spoken to many and I'm sure Dave you probably have too at one point or another. I've spoken to many uh, experts in uh, drug detection of, of dogs. And uh, while a few have said to me that it's theoretically possible that certain substances that are steroidal, um, obviously not testosterone because it's in our bodies, but it, there, there could be some training, but I had yet to detect anybody who could firmly say that a department had ever actually trained a dog to detect steroids. And so they gave me a sheet of paper that um, was a training log that, you know, most of what was found in the trunk was – there was a lot of stenozolol, a lot of winstrel in there. And so there was a piece of paper that wrote, dog trained, handwritten, winstrel (laughs) was (laughs) was written on there Uh, and no other steroids. So, uh, I mean – it was insane. It was absolutely ridiculous. And ultimately um, we were able to prevail and, you know, I was able to extricate him from the situation and he was, uh, you know, not, uh, he did not get a conviction out of that. Uh, he was exonerated at the end, but uh, based on a, a bad stop, but um, it's, it's some weird stuff that can go on here in the U S of A.
2: Yeah. no kidding. Well, mo. My- I mean, we, I don't know how it works in there, but we have a little bit of a filtration system because it goes through our Crown Prosecution Service. So they, they are the ones that decide whether this case is going to go to court or not. Uh, it's not down to the individual police officers. So the Individual Police Officers Act as detection and evidence gathering, but they don't, don't bring it together in the sense of um, a court case. Just right quickly, because I know we're pushed on time, um you mentioned the sports and cheating being a driver for 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 law um we have the ukad so the united kingdom anti doping now they are the biggest bunch of morons that ever walked the planet i can't stand them i've had several stand up arguments with their chair however unfortunately there has been quite a bit of interest recently in where steroids currently sit so we've recently had two projects looking at user levels within the UK we've had an independent project looking at is legislation change viable in the UK and now we've got a couple of uh, government body think tanks that deal with drugs in general trying to shoehorn steroids into creating family poverty um, and as most of us know, that isn't very common, generally speaking. It's not that steroid users don't come from poor backgrounds, but they don't generally put themselves in poverty risk from their usage. But UKAD have for a very long time campaigned to change steroid law so that possession would be illegal. And they've done that because they currently have no power. They are a completely powerless entity and they rely on other agencies to support them. If they can get that law changed, they're hoping that will then give them power. Uh, They've recently taken on a number of ex-police officers as staff, uh, and the quote I was given was, they have been charged with looking at the steroid problem in the UK. Um, Everybody else is very much opposed to legal change, but we are, or we do appear to be at the moment, on the edge of a potential drive to make possession illegal in the UK. How successful that will be, I have no idea. Hmm. But the police have a secondary um, incentive. So we have over here what's known as POCA, proceeds of crime order. And that is basically a financial fine to the criminal to pay out what the courts deem they have gained through illicit means that money is then divided into three uh, so um sorry no it's divided into half half goes to the crown and half or to the government and and the other half is split a third to the police force uh, a third to the crown prosecution service and a, a third to the court area in which they will prosecute it so it's a money so maker. Police yeah. That, yeah so police that are strapped for for budget right. Prosecuting steroids is now becoming interesting because of the financial aspect. Hmm. So it can benefit them financially. So there are grumblings and a little vibrations that they are going to start becoming more interested in steroids from a point of enforcement. And there is this little shadow in the background that if UKAD get their teeth into anything, they may start pushing very hard for a legislation change. Um, unfortunately from an enforcement point of view, none of them have any knowledge at all. (laughs) So if it does change, we are going to see, you know, Jimmy down the road with two bottles of sauce in court for supply. And it's ridiculous. Um, but yes, um, it was interesting that you put the links with the sports stuff because that is probably the UKD is probably the biggest driver in the UK Mm -hmm. Trying to create legislation change and trying to increase enforcement,
1: and that was true. I think that was that's been historically true. Here, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, which is our uh, you know anti-doping authority here in the U.S., our, our you know affiliate of the World Anti-Doping Agency, has really been you know, very uh, aggressive in its uh, positions in terms of cheating in sports and, and obviously with respect to steroids. If we had more time, I mean, there's so many other, um, you know, things that we could talk about. One of, one of the things that just popped into my head based on what you said is that a number of years ago I was involved in a research project called, uh, which was published as an article. You can find it uh, online if you just search for a league of their own and a uh, journal of the international society of sports nutrition. And we did a survey of 2000 anabolic steroid users, um, and, you know, non-medical <clears throat> users to really get a sense of motivations and demographics. And what we did find was that the average steroid user is not poor. The average steroid user is at least, you know, as educated or more educated than the average American is employed and making, on average, more money than the average American. So um, it was very interesting to, to read about the demographics, the, the motivations, et cetera, um, and, and anybody who's interested can find it. Um, the other thing is, and we could talk about this as well. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with, but there are some Scandinavian countries that have adopted policies called muscle profiling. Yes, and we could have a whole a whole discussion about using the phenotype, the, the physicality of a person, their muscularity, as probable cause, for a belief that they're on the drugs that are making them more muscular and are therefore subject to arrest for probable cause based on having, there was a celebrated case in Sweden where this kid had had big traps, right? I mean, the, the kid's walking on the street, he's got these, these big trap muscles and an undercover cop seeing this kid's traps says, I've got myself a steroid user, he is on steroids and Walks him to the police station and forces him to take a urine test to and determine test. Yeah. whether or not he's on steroids and whether he could be charged with a crime based on the size of his trap muscles. And that got some press in, in Sweden because ultimately the kid was not kid turned up clean. He, he just had big traps. We he was doing a lot guy. of shrugs and yeah. you know doing a lot of upright rows and he had some, some decent traps on, on him.
2: I believe that went to, or, or that law was tested in the European Court and they lost and are no longer actually allowed to prosecute based on appearance. But it still does go on um, because it's never actually filled down into reality. I actually work with two Swedish guys who train in a home built gym because they do not want to take the risk of training in a commercial gym and somebody asking the question. So well, they, don't they, they literally they, dare go they in a commercial still, gym.
1: Do they still have that policy? There was a policy in Sweden where gyms could either put a smiley face or a frowny face
2: that's, on the no, gym. That's um, Denmark. So you, what they have is they haven't – they had. They've stopped it now, but they had a, nas- a national testing policy. Uh, and if your gym was willing to sign up to that, you had a smiley face on the door. Huh. And if your gym was unwilling to sign up to that, you had a, a sad face on the door. So effectively, what it did was it advertised <laughs> to every steroid user in the country, <laughs> that's a gearhead gym, <laughs> right, and that's a yeah. natty gym. I know which one I'm going and to. say said
1: that to every police officer in the country, right? I mean, yeah. you know,
2: so... <laughs> But what they found was it—they they, they they withdrew. They stopped it uh, because it was driving uses underground, and they've seen an increase in problems with harm reduction and stuff like that. So they've now dropped that and and got rid of it completely. Uh, that system has now been scrapped. But. Uh, yeah, there's been some wacky things. I, I went over there filming a, a few years ago, and um, and we were chatting about this, and it was absolutely bonkers.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was part of and the under-construction you, documentary, wasn't it?
2: It was. The the thing was as well, if you used a smiley face, Jim, then you agreed to random testing.
0: Hmm.
2: Right. If you used a miserable face, Jim, then you didn't, so they couldn't test you. Hmm. And they drove it through the gym memberships that if you entered a smiley face gym, then you consented to being randomly tested for steroids. But they, they have, it has massive cultural support over there because they don't celebrate individual athletes. Um, their whole culture is about being a team. So they celebrate teamwork and obviously bodybuilding and that sort of thing are very singular pursuits. They're not team pursuits. Mm. So they they even, I remember I, I was interviewed on the radio over there and we touched the subject and they were telling me that they had an athlete who had done incredibly well in the Olympic Games and he was like a canoeer or something like that. Uh, and they received no sort of hero's welcome, even though he was their biggest medal winner in the Games because he was an individual and culturally they look down on individual sport. They support only team sport. Mm. So they feel that everybody, and that's a social thing, That that's their social right. culture is that team is celebrated, individuality is selfish and oppressed almost. Well, it, was, listen, it was quite mad.
0: Listen, guys, I hate to jump in. I hate to cut this off. I know that we could keep going, but I know that Rick has to get back to work. And Dave, I know that you've got some stuff to do, too. Uh, we appreciate everybody who's been hanging out watching this and uh, everybody on YouTube and Rick, we much appreciate you taking the time man out of your busy day to, to hang out and, and shoot the shit with us. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure. I've got, uh, it's if you guys, great. To, if you guys want to reach out Thank to uh, Rick, hopefully you don't need to, but if you did need to <laughs> go to steroidlaw.com because you can find him there. And, uh, uh it, like we had mentioned too. actually, we talked about that a little bit before the show. Rick's been in all sorts of uh, films, including Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which he mentioned. You had a great role in that, man. And I think you had some really awesome insights that that you had shared there. Uh, Is there there anything else besides the website where you'd want to direct people to? Oh, in in your magazine?
1: yeah, I mean, I have a magazine column at Muscular Development um, and uh, some articles on MD.com. Um, and visit me on social media. I have an Instagram page, and um, I, I try to post there and you know, some interesting stuff. I, I posted a, a bicep picture the other day, which Scott, you were you were mentioning over before the show. So
0: guns. over twenty <laughs> inch guns. So,
1: <laughs> so well, come visit me on IG, Rick Collins ESQ. All right.
0: Well, for another episode here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media, this has been Drugs and Stuff with Dave Crossland and our special guest, Rick Collins. Guys, we'll see you soon.